Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss Keir Starmer's leadership so far. And you ask us, is patriotism really the route to Labour's victory? So we're recording on what has been a difficult week for the Labour leader so far. He came unstuck during PMQs, having to say that he actually misheard Boris Johnson when he accused him of saying he wanted the UK to remain part of the European Medicines Agency. And there was also a leak of a report put together for what the Labour Party needed to do to appeal to red wall voters, which suggested waving more flags and various symbolic gestures like that. Stephen, you were writing your column this week on Keir Starmer and kind of what the commentariat consensus is forming around his image. Can you tell us a bit about why you decided that was your column theme and sort of what you found when you were researching it? Well, so as I think I've said on the podcast before, broadly what happens with the poll call is I do like six or so ideas. The idea is this forces me, even with political parties, then to take an, an, another example of something where like people in the bubble are getting increasingly like agitated. And I also think incorrectly, the Liberal Democrats lack of prominence because in an, any given week, the chances that um, Jason will say, yes, yes, what the magazine needs this week is a Lib Dem column. But it's bad hygiene for me to only talk to the Lib Dems three weeks out of every 52. I try and make sure that I basically have an idea about from all of the devolved governments, an idea from the Labour Party, the Conservative Party, and then a kind of MISC idea. And so one of the things I had was the, to me, quite fascinating growing divide between what you might call Keir Starmer's market price, right? Like, bluntly... I have to say this is true of our list of the divide between our listeners, right? Like the guy polls better than David Cameron did in a year in his in a year of time in his office. He polls worse than Tony Blair, right? Which means that I'm not saying that Keir Starmer doesn't necessarily have it in him to mess it up, right? But I just think if you think that your team like can capitulate three nl r which does happen right which that that does happen, right? But you you do nonetheless need to start from an understanding that you are three nil up. So I but basically, just like, I think it's interesting that there's a gap between how Keir Starmer is perceived by most of the commentary, but also most of what, uh, and often I feel when people use the political class, they use it to mean, you know, like 
social liberals, including like someone who like goes to the theatre twice a year and like maybe gets their news off the Guardian homepage every other day, which is a useful definition of the political class. But basically, I would say there is a growing perception among people who follow politics closely, what I've sometimes called the fast news people, what I have now described in this column as like the first world of, of politics, where politics happens at a very fast pace, people who check the news very regularly, who think about it all the time. And there's, I would say, a growing consensus among most, but not all occupants of that world, and Keir Starmer is not up to it and things are going badly. And this is, again, hard to reconcile with the fact that his ratings are just very good. right? And then he has managed to do this in a year when broadly every bit of data we have about what the median voters says and they're like, we just don't want you to be fighting this year. Things are really bad. You all need to come together. And I basically have done, well, look, here are a couple of reasons why this, this might be. Some of which is that I think broadly the leader's office under Keir Starmer would also subscribe to the there are two worlds thesis. But where I guess I differ from them is that I think they have tended to be quite bad at cultivating. Yeah, it's a bit like the vote leave mobs, kind of like, oh, look, the only thing that really matters, yeah, like most of these people don't matter. Now, the difference also is, is Don Cummings loved to cultivate those people when it was writing nice things about himself. What they didn't do is they didn't do a very good job of doing the parliamentary management, the cultivation of other people in the Tory party. And eventually... Despite the fact that, you know, look, the problems with the government's coronavirus response had nothing to do with the vote leave people in Downing Street, and it has not got better because the vote leave people in Downing Street aren't there. That is not the story of the, the, the differing bits of the government's coronavirus response. But nonetheless, because of their failure to cultivate opinion in, the, in that first world, they were eventually uh, defenestrated. Now, I don't think that will happen because uh, it's the Labour Party. Broadly, people often ignore them, like, the base rate of successful Labour coups is zero. I don't even think there will at any point be an attempt in this one. But basically, I've gone like, look, here's why people are jittery. Here's the ways it doesn't doesn't matter. And that's like the theme of the politics column. I think it's interesting in terms of that commentariat consensus. And while it's obviously always lovely to be given the plug, is the number of places which have basically gone, this is a very critical piece by going, I'm just going to not quote the bit, which is good. No, really. yeah. including people who've then gone like, but surely you think this is wrong. It's just like, hmm. So there is, I think, a growing consensus, and I think it's quite interesting, not least because, as I say, it is so unmoored from Keir Starmer's market price, as it were. It's probably worth saying that, so we're recording on Thursday at lunchtime, it really is popping off, this column, it has got people talking, and you're too modest to kind of talk about the extent of it, but... Well, it's got everyone, I suppose, in the first world of the people who follow politics in the fast lane, people in Westminster talking. And as you say, it has been received by some as quite a critical column, which I think is interesting because, as you just outlined, I think it's even clearer when you read the full column than when you than the way you just summed it up very clearly that it that you aren't necessarily agreeing with that consensus you're just stating that it exists and probing why it's so interesting which I think it really it really is because as you say that consensus within Westminster among commentators and backbench MPs and so on that eventually does trickle through to the second world and has has consequences for the way you are covered in the news and the morale and, and, you know, as you say, I mean, the likelihood of, of it manifesting in some sort of real world leadership challenge is low. But the fact that that consensus exists 
like doesn't exist in a bubble it, it will eventually impact on the second world of the people who are you know just watching the news or catching the news on music radio or the headlines every few days and who aren't paying as much attention I think that's that's why it's so significant I th- that was the bit that I most enjoyed from the column was the division of those two worlds and your assessment of how he was doing in, in each of those zones. Because the second world, which is sort of the, the normal people, if you like, or that's what people sort of class them who, who talk about politics for a living, that's always seen as the great prize, isn't it? And everything that happens is always seen through this lens of, oh, we're all so obsessed with this, but actually how much does it cut through? So I think it is it is interesting that, that your assessment is that Keir Starmer has done well in that arena because that's the hardest one, right? And also that's the one where you say it's a bit more slow moving and the reputations tend to stick more. So once you've won sort of that side of things over, perhaps perhaps that's half the battle because the Westminster world and people like us can be quite fickle and, you know, people change their minds and sometimes it will be a good week for a leader and sometimes a bad week. So I'd say that that sort of music radio path is probably the one that he was right to try and focus on conquering when he came in. And we've spoken about it before, but there is this Westminster consensus that people make their minds up about leaders quite early on. And it's quite difficult to shift the kind of reputation that they then have stuck to them for the rest of their leadership if you if you do it wrong from from the off. So I think you're right that he's that he's successfully done that and that does deserve pointing out. But also you're right that it's telling that in in the way that people are talking about your column, it's being read as very critical. I think the Politico playbook email called it called some of it brutal this morning. But that's telling of what of what the sort of inside are thinking about Keir Starmer at the moment, instead of pick, picking up on the fact that you, you were actually quite complimentary. The thing which is interesting about it is I think um, George Osborne did an um, interview on Playbook's email about morning emails, which obviously, as the author of a morning email, I listened to very enthusiastically, not least because my first boss in journalism was on it. So it was a nice trip down memory lane in which George Osborne basically talks about well ultimately your your price in in, in the electorate is, is what sets your price in the bubble which I think is mostly true but to come back to the vote leave example right I mean it, it may be the word normal people may have been edged into there but for me at least it's, it's people who pol- follow politics closely and people who don't it's the it's broadly the the divide that matters and not least because people who follow politics closely you know it's a bit like trying to make your living by like only making custom-made bookshelves for people in period houses. It's not that you can't do it, but there aren't very many of them. It's a great deal of work. And in the end, the level of effort you have to make in order to make as much money as someone who like just makes bookshelves for people, the reward-effort ratio is, is, is pretty out of whack there. To kind of come back to the Vote Leave example, when Lee Kane was, um, was defenestrated, his sacking was the number one news item on Radio 3 that morning. Now, I feel pretty confident in saying I am probably in maybe, what, 20% of the normal Radio 3 listenership who didn't listen to that and go, who the hell is Lee Kane? And why should I care that he's gone? And I think the reason why I like the people who follow politics closely deciding maybe he's a bit rubbish is it starts to feed through to the tone of the coverage everywhere else and I think the the interesting social media change right is that parties no longer control which bits of their uh, to the extent they ever did which bits of their agenda will cut through right so let's take say free broadband right 
yeah, which continued the effortless streak, then if I agreed with Jeremy Corbyn on a policy, was broadly the ones which were like the most electorally toxic. But free broadband, one of the the reason why it cut through was the the BBC push notified it on their app. Now their app, yeah, six, there are six million people who get that app on their phones, most of whom do not follow politics that closely. But the person whose job it is on any given day to push the app, the app will likely be someone who follows politics closely. They will likely be someone who gets a push notification from their Twitter app every time or a K tweets. So their assumptions kind of filter through in this slightly weird and perverse way without them really being aware that that's what's happening. And what gets pushed through is shaped by their underlying perception of Keir Starmer, which does come back to their underlying perception of whether or how they feel he is doing in the bubble. And is this too much of an intrusion? But have you have you heard anything from Keir Starmer or his team in response to your column? Well, I'm going to masterfully evade the question. <laughs> a large reaction inside the world of the Labour Party from across its 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 various tribes and groups. The interesting thing is is people say, yeah, people in the bubble love to go oh, well, once you have a first impression outside of it, mm. it's very hard to... But it's, this is true of everyone, of basically everything, right? We like to have our initial our initial impressions reinforced. We actively seek out evidence that does so, and we are primed at a sort of basic level to reject stuff which doesn't fit our priors. So obviously I'm about to say everything I've heard from every corner of the Labour Party confirms my general view that a lot of this is about people having a rubbish time in lockdown and then feeling kind of unloved by the leader's office in, in different ways. I think the thing that to me is interesting is that broadly, I think a lot of this will go away when two things happen. One, when unlocking happens and political parties can start to operate in a normal way. That has manifested itself in two quite different ways in the two main parties. In the, in the Conservative Party, what has happened is, is broadly you have a situation where there's still a lot of normal politicking. There's, there's almost this weird Venn diagram that's just like, I want to talk to my mate about how I think the PM is doing and the fact I haven't been promoted. Maybe if I do that at a work meeting, that means we can talk about how lockdown is bad. Maybe we should just learn to live with it. Oh, I'm a lockdown skeptic and I'm now voting against the government on lockdown. Right, there's this kind of like weird radicalization journey. I think with the Labour Party, the reverse sort of happens, right? You have lots of Labour MPs and this even goes to people in the shadow cabinet who they're like, well, yeah, there's lots of formal stuff like the shadow cabinet meeting via Zoom or, I mean, I think it's Teams now. I can never remember which one they switch to or from. We have the shadow cabinet meeting or we have an away day, but there's no kind of like two people talking in the corridors or, you know, there's like some like gentle, like, how are your kids conversation over like mm. cups of tea. There's, yeah, that instead that like very stilted like Zoom Teams theatre. And so the Labour Party feels more atomized and therefore I think more kind of paranoid and jittery. So some of that will just ease once we are out of um, this awful way of living. The flip side of that is let's say for a moment that the local elections happen and the half of the local elections will just be utterly terrible, I think, right? Because you have a bunch of 2016 ones where, you know, where for a variety of things, right? You have like, say, somewhere like Sandwell where. Labour has all of the councillors and there are now two Conservative MPs. Now, if even one of those Conservative MPs is like remotely able to organise a functioning local party, they'll presumably get, what, five local councils? If you extrapolate that across the 2016 map, right, you suddenly end up with a lot of like, oh, no, the red wall, the red wall. (laughs) Then you have a bunch of places where 
yeah, the Labour Party did very well under first past the post with, say, 35% of the vote. And the combined Conservative UKIP vote is essentially the remainder of the vote there. Well, again, assuming that the local, and obviously this may be slightly flattened by some local Conservative parties being moribund, but assuming in every seat like that, in every council ward like that, where the local Conservative party isn't moribund, the Conservatives are probably going to gain that seat. Now, this will be slightly obviated by the fact that the 2017 council councils will be much more normal because all of that post-Brexit churn will have started to happen and the 2017 local elections were very bad for the Labour Party. So you kind of assume that like, when all of the results are counted, unless something has gone disastrously wrong for the Labour Party in one way or the other, there will be a big list of council councillor gains with, you know, a three-digit number in them. But you can easily see how throughout the night, just as throughout the night in 2019, although Conservative MPs did realise this, the BBC continued to cover these utterly disastrous results as if they were somehow mixed for the Tory party, because that was what the first set of council results suggested. And so I think it's possible that at the end, actually, the coming together actually is more fraught. But I suspect what will happen is MPs will get together again, They'll remember they quite like each other and they do mostly all agree on most political issues. And like the Labour Party will have gained 300 more councillors and everyone will suddenly go, oh, wait, we're in the David Cameron zone. Woohoo, the best is yet to come. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12 one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt until you tried it on same goes for your health care that's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So we've had lots of questions about the Labour Party patriotism story this episode. We're going to do this one. Labour's coalition is often said to be split. Terms I've heard such as progressive activists, civic pragmatists, disengaged battlers. Is the recent flag row evidence that this base just can't be reconciled? Or is there a path through for Labour? I think this is a really good question and I think it, it's it's one of the big questions for Labour, like the fundamental one about how it conceives of its ideal voter coalition and, and how it thinks it can win a majority again. I'm sure a lot of our listeners will have seen the Guardian story, but just in case, in case you missed it, there was a leaked report from focus groups sort of um, advice from an external agency telling Labour politicians that they needed to, it was flags, veterans and dressing smartly were the three to sort of strike a more patriotic tone and 
I think the one of the phrases used was just change the party's body language to to seem a little bit more patriotic. And this was clearly briefed to the Guardian, clearly clearly leaked to the Guardian because there are people within Labour who are really unhappy and or uncomfortable with this strategy. And then this question gets to gets to the heart of it, which is the I think the really interesting thing for me, which is that the Labour election review that came out after the 2019 defeat talks about the Labour Party's new core vote is mostly not entirely but mostly younger more progressive people or different overlapping groups but about 21% of the electorate who stuck with Labour at the last election and who've stuck with Labour the whole time that they represent about 21% of the electorate and they are on crime and immigration and patriotism completely different to the rest of the electorate basically and I think we've we've talked about this on on the podcast before because I just find it so fascinating these are groups when polled that tended to say that that they wouldn't say that they're proud of their country or they find ideas like that a bit gauche they're very pro-immigration they're less tough on crime and then that that just doesn't tally with the attitudes of the rest of the electorate at all so that's kind of Labour's problem that that core vote has kind of stuck with it but those are not necessarily attitudes or approaches that can really represent the Labour Party at large because you're trying to pull in many other kinds of voters and I suppose this isn't really an answer but I think about it a lot and it's sort of it's the key to to some of the some of the criticisms of Keir Starmer, you know, people feeling like he sold himself as a bit of a continuity candidate during the leadership contest and promised to continue the Corbyn policy package basically. People who feel a little bit betrayed because then since he became leader, he he has I suppose the vibe has been more equivocal on that even if the policies haven't really changed. The vibe has been more equivocal. There was all the stuff about Jeremy Corbyn, which is kind of separate, but that sent a, a signal to lots of people about the direction of the party, plus the things that Keir Starmer has said about Black Lives Matter or the caller onto L- LBC who who spouted a racist white supremacy conspiracy theory. He sort of said, oh, you know, Gemma, I, I'm going to do my impression of well, Gemma, I don't, I don't agree, um, but <laughs> that's very good. <laughs> so he, he did actually say he didn't agree. People say that he didn't challenge it. He he did, I suppose, literally say that that wasn't his view, but he didn't do it with a terrible amount of passion and didn't really unpick it. And he left people really unhappy with that. I always think, like, can someone describe a situation where they have heard or seen Keir Starmer? do anything with a particular amount of passion (laughs) i mean that was like like, so this is what i continue to find fascinating about like certain people's readings of that incident right because i think they're right to think it's worrying i just don't understand how they've come to the conclusion about why it's worrying that they have Uh, yeah exactly and i'm sure he thought that he challenged it and the criticism should be why isn't he capable of a mode where he is more passionate and robust on all those sort of things and there are many many more and I suppose they're all individually small but they have kind they collectively add up to the sum of the grievances that 
that the Labour left has with Keir Starmer or sort of younger progressives would have with Keir Starmer. There are all these things. And the ultimate question is, are they still going to vote for Labour? And I think that there's still a distinct possibility that the answer is yes, because Stephen and I talk about this quite a bit. And I suppose the point is that those kinds of people are not going to vote conservative for a start. If you're younger, more progressive, more pro-immigration, Boris Johnson's Conservative Party or even Rishi Sunak's Conservative Party is not going to be for you. I mean, in an individual seat, when push comes to shove, you have your local Labour candidate who might be quite different to Keir Starmer, you know, who might have been hitting more of the notes that you like. You might be in, in Diane Abbott's constituency or Nadia Whittam's. They'll be striking all the right notes for you anyway, and you're still going to vote Labour. Or you might not really know your Labour candidate, you'd still vote Labour. Be looking at the electoral politics of where you are. And even if you think, well, I hate this patriotism stuff, you will still vote Labour. You won't vote enthusiastically, but you still win. You still will. Then Labour's strategy is working because they might have a less enthusiastic core of progressive younger Liberals, but they stick with it while they expand their voter coalition, which is what they need to do. You can see how that would work because depending on the seat, it's unlikely that suddenly so many people are going to vote green that people are prepared to let a conservative in by splitting the the left vote between Labour and the Greens. And then also, you know, we've spoken before about how the the battlegrounds are very much divided between Labour and the Lib Dems, or they will be in 2024, in that there are not very many places where the Lib Dems and Labour in direct competition. So again, maybe even if if sort of younger progressive people are less into Labour's brand, they are probably unlikely to, to vote Lib Dem in a place where the Lib Dems don't stand a chance. And then when the Lib Dems are the, are the main progressive challenger, you know, people can see tactically that it would make more sense to, to back the Lib Dems in that one anyway. So I think actually... My question would actually be whether the patriotism strategy would work on the voters that it's meant to work on, rather than whether it is alienating that that core base to the extent that those people are actually going to not vote Labour. Because I think that at the moment, that's less of a risk, even though in the longer term, we know that it isn't good for political parties to take their base or their core vote for granted. But I think in the immediate term, it's more like... Does the union jack and dressing more smartly and veteran stuff, does that wash with voters? Does it make a difference? Does it seem sincere? Does it have any sort of impact? I think I think those are actually the questions rather than the, the question about whether it's alienating the, the core vote. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think that the big concern should be that it's alienating a certain demographic of voters, because like you say, the main place that they have to turn to still is the Labour Party. So I don't know if that's the main risk of this. You know, it's something that the Labour Party, it's something that all parties are always so preoccupied with. You know, they're always trying to use patriotic or sort of uniform imagery to try and portray a certain message about themselves. Do you remember that picture that Boris Johnson had taken in front of all of those policemen behind him, for example? The New Statesman, you know, I remember a time when we used to run 
a number of blogs by John Denham every few months about Labour and how it should relate to the St George's Cross and and, and English patriotism. It's it's always been a, an issue of of much heartache and debate and also of of symbolism and marketing basically for the Labour Party and other political parties in this country. So it's not new. It's not you know whoever came up with this these slides or this report or ever and presented it to the Labour Party weren't being particularly original. But it also doesn't mean that it doesn't work either because this stuff you know when it's focus grouped does tend to be. I don't think it tends to be particularly offensive, even if so far dabbling in in the kind of flag and veteran imagery hasn't worked for the modern Labour Party in a while. This It's the same with the dressing smartly as well. I mean, I remember David Cameron got criticised quite a lot for telling Corbyn to put on a proper suit and do up your tie or something in PMQs. And everyone said, oh, you know, what a snob. And, yeah, do up your tie and sing the national anthem. Yeah, and sing the national anthem or stand up for the national anthem or something. And actually, you know, he was kind of <laughs> sneering. It seemed it, it seemed patronising, but he, he was right. People assume that you're, you're disrespecting them if you're not dressing up for, for a job in politics. You know, that, that's something that is important to people. I, I always remember when I went door knocking or, or following Carwin Jones door knocking in South Wales once ahead of an election and he he said to me working class politicians wear suits when they go door knocking and you can tell the middle class ones because they don't and I thought it was really interesting because he basically was saying I've made the effort to put on a suit and tie when I go and knock on people's doors and 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 the working class voters of wherever we were appreciate that and so I think David Cameron was almost doing Jeremy Corbyn a a favour when he when he made that comment even though it was like a PMQ's jibe and Jeremy Corbyn lo and behold did try and smarten up his image so I think I don't think it's illegitimate to, to to say that focusing on trying to look smart is something that could help, you know, even if it is superficial. And also, again, that's as old as the hills. This is nothing new. I suppose the real question is the Labour Party has tried to use these kind of tricks for a long time and it hasn't worked. So, you know, how do you do it in a way that's backed up by values and that uh, communicates authenticity and doesn't just look like you're changing the colour of a leaflet? As you say, Anush, the thing I continue to find weird about a lot of the discourse around this subject is it does seem to relate to, as far as I can tell, a fictional version of Jeremy Corbyn's political project. I mean, so one, like this external briefing, which, as Alva says, clearly leaked to the Observer with a hostile spin on it by people in the room who didn't like it. But use veterans, what, like, maybe using them as some of your quest like so find specifically finding a veteran you could use as one of your people's PMQs like <laughs> one Jay Corbyn did. Dress smartly as like okay, I'm gonna get back onto the dress smartly thing where, where like basically one of the, the big kind of joint achievements of Carrie Murphy and Seamus Milne was getting him to put on a proper suit, right? If you look back at I think about the twenty fifteen campaign, you know, going around to God knows how many church halls or other venues for those hustings right where you know he 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 really did look you know like a character from the Quatermass experiment or something you know is his tweed suits and he had this like very like you know kind of I am the very model of a sort of like affable English eccentric kind of thing going on and then you compare him in 2017 when he did have you know a reasonably sharp suit and did actually in the 2019 hustings he did have reasonably sharp suits and the flag which yeah like like, you know, go back and watch, like, the R-Town video, right? Like, they did yeah. all of those yeah, things. That's really good now, example. is the difference 
A, that like a bunch of people who are too online across the Labour Party are doing what people who are too online across the Labour Party do, which is engage in like obviously specious factionalism where like, I mean, guys, if you could channel the energy you channel into convincing yourselves of like your nonsense into convincing the country, you'd be a much more successful political movement. Is it that? Isn't people pick up on the fact that Jeremy Corbyn had to be cajoled by his aides into like wearing his nice suit? Mm. And then Keir Starmer is like visibly a man who like has been wearing a full suit on on every Zoom call since March 2020, right? Because there is one argument and this will work differently is just that people can sense the difference between a politician who's been forced to put on a smart suit and a politician who hasn't been. But like, Broadly, like, it is the most banal piece of advice, whether you are, like, applying for a dead-end job to be the prime minister or just trying to get someone to go to bed with you. You need to clean yourself up and feign enthusiasm for the person you are trying to woo. But, but equally, right, the flip side of that is you can clean yourself up, dress nicely, and you will still get turned down for a bunch of jobs. A bunch of people will still decide not to go to bed with you, and you will still lose a bunch of elections, right? Like, there are loads of other factors that you have to be able to control for in order for that to be successful. And I I think a lot of this discourse relies on two, I think, slightly wild assumptions about, like, Labour's call. The first is that when people say they are not very patriotic, they are making a remotely similar statement to saying they aren't at all patriotic. But also, the second, broadly, in 1997, the core Conservative vote was less patriotic than the Labour vote. That wasn't because, like, a bunch of lefty intellectuals in places like Stoke Newington were voting Tory. It was because they disagreed with the political trajectory the country was on. I think a lot of this is people, like, looking at the, like, oh, that 19%, oh, they're the same as, like, people on Twitter who use phrases like butcher's apron to refer to the flag. It's like, well, they probably aren't. The interesting question, though, is, like, basically, right, the Keir Starmer Labour Together strategy is you have radical economic policies, you're reassuring and like safe on the cultural issues, and that allows you to do like a little bit better than the 2017 election. But the fascinating thing is, is every once or so often, and obviously I think they announce too many policies, and this is one of the reasons why none of them cut through, but every so often they either announce or re-announce a pretty radical policy. Like Keir Starmer did an actually quite moving, and I say this as someone who's quite dubious about the policy, an actually quite moving defence of like why free tuition fees were important to him, why they thought they were good the other day. And it got zero real coverage, and you know, it didn't even like make a splash on political Twitter. Yeah, like the Labour Party has announced a very good and quite radical set of benefit reforms. Again, very little coverage. And I suspect it's because you actually can't, like no matter how many focus groups will tell you, oh, like if you have reassurance plus radicalism, congratulations, you're in like electoral hegemony city. I think broadly, if you give off a reassuring vibe, people just don't absorb the policy, which I think is why every week we have some question. I mean, we have one this week, which is some variant on why aren't they actually doing the Labour together thing? It's like, well, they are. So I don't think it's so much that the patriotism thing is irreconcilable. I think that's actually fine with their base. I think most of that 20% just like basically is like doesn't like the direction that the country is going in, which is quite different from not liking the country. I think the difficulty is, is that if your thing is, I'm reassuring, I wouldn't do anything bad, I have a commanding chin, then when you go, by the way, here's my radical set of benefit policies, People are just like, mm, you're probably not going to do that, are you? Or, or like they just don't absorb it as radical. Now, maybe it turns out you can just win with reassurance. 
But I think the challenge, and I think it's true, but because like this is obviously like you know been the like holy electoral grail of the soft left for a thousand years, is this idea that you can just win by having reassurance and radicalism. But I think one of the reasons why Corbyn seemed radical to the people who were enthusiastic about that in 2017 is that he was not reassuring. And I'm not convinced, although as 2019 shows, you can have a situation where like people don't believe your radicalism because they think you can't do any any of it because they don't think you're competent and they aren't reassured of you and some of them are actually quite scared of you and then, you know, you're in landslide defeat city. But I don't, and this to me is the, the reason why I'm sceptical that then, then this can work, despite everything I said in the first half about him being in the Cameron zone, is I just don't think that you can offer the, the radicalism plus reassurance thing. I just don't think works particularly not when you're getting less if you're broadly aiming for like the 2017 manifesto but there isn't an awkward silence where the welfare policy should be like you know and like and like some of the more the more like shall we say impressionistic policies are are fleshed out right but that means that like broadly coming from the context of labor in 2019 everything you do no matter how radical is written up as retreat and i think that's actually their bigger problem with this call it's not like they don't like the patriotism stuff it's an all of the like oh look i'm reassuring makes all of the policy announcements land in a very different way you've been listening to the new statesman podcast with me anush shikelian and my colleagues alva ray and stephen bush you can find me on twitter at anush underscore c you can find me on twitter at pronounced alva and you can find me on Twitter as at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts.